Welcome to Jews on Film. My name is Harry Adensasser. I am a former film major, current Jewish film podcaster, and aspirational funny guy. Uh, I am joined, as always, by my funnier host, Daniel Zana. Daniel, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure thing. Thank you so much, Harry. I am uh, Daniel Zana, a video editor, a documentary filmmaker, an amateur gambler, and I'm very excited to be here with you today, Harry. I'm excited to be here today, Harry. It's 2023. Here we are again. I wanted to share some exciting, uh, some press that we got recently in the Moment magazine. They put us in an article called the best Jewish podcast released this year, 2022. Uh, so Sarah Sachs wrote that up on the Moment magazine. So really excited to to see our our name in in print, digitally at least. What do you think, man? Do you think we're one of the best released in 2022? You know, Jewish film podcast or Jewish podcast. I don't want to narrow it too far, but right. Jewish podcast. I don't know what the full list is, but it, it really is an honor to be included among, you know, the top however many were, were featured on that list. So uh, very grateful for that. A great way to start the new year, I would say. Totally. What a boost to my ego. It's carried me for at least, what, like two weeks now? Yeah, I'm I'm very excited. Thanks so much, Moment, for, for shouting us out among uh, all the other great podcasts listed there. And, you know, I, I wanted to welcome in our guest today. Very excited to be discussing the, the film Funny Girl um, from 1968 with our guest, who's a social media educator on Jewish identity and intra-community issues. Welcome to Jews on Film, Yasmin Esther. How are you? Hello. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Thanks for joining us today to yeah, talk about great. Funny Girl. Very excited. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just excited to have you here. We were talking just a little bit before the podcast started about funny girl and it sounds like you have a very close relationship to the film you sound it sounds like you're uh, very well versed in it i think so i think so we'll see yeah i mean you've seen it you've, you've seen the movie more than once wow more than 10 times i don't even know how many times the beginning right. of the movie is really my favorite so sometimes i'll just actually put certain scenes on repeat and just watch it over and over it's a little weird but I get it. While while she's still kind of on her upswing, and we'll talk about this in the plot, but there's a lot of good energy, I would say, yeah. and, and a lack of a lack of trauma actually that that she calls out at exactly. one point, a lack of struggle. Mm -hmm. That's really fun to watch in the beginning until things start to go a little bit south. Exactly. Yep. Totally. I I mean, I wanted to kind of ask, as as someone who's watched the film a lot of times, you you mentioned, and you keep on watching it. Sort of, you said something like, "Hope I'm not putting you on blast here," but you said you watch it at least twice a month. Usually, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and that's dedication, that's commitment, and and we appreciate that on the podcast. That's like method, listen, or method watching. You know, <laughs> kind of really getting into the role here. Um, yeah. So I wanted to ask, like, why did you pick the film? Why why is this such a important and seminal film for you? And why did what made you want to discuss it on the pod? It's several things. The first thing is, I mean, it's Babs, right? Babs is an icon. Her voice is honestly, probably incomparable. I mean, there's people that are just as talented, but her voice is so unique and so beautiful. And the fact that she is funny, even when she's not trying to be funny, like she's just singing and you just, she's so like charismatic, but also animated. Um, and I am extremely animated. It's just my personality. That plus, I think the way that they address, not so subtly, but beauty standards of Jewish women during that time, um, and how her mother's friends implied that, how could she be famous? I mean, she's not beautiful, right? Like she's not, but she was. And I love the fact that Barbara Streisand, just like Fanny Bryce, never changed who she was. She stayed authentic to who she was and how she looks. Um, 
And that's a really important message, I think, especially now because we're still dealing with these ridiculous like Eurocentric beauty standards and young Jewish, you know, girls getting nose jobs like right as they turn 12, 13. So I think it's really important. Um, and then you add in Omar Sharif and it's like, come on, <laughs> come on. I mean, that's a handsome looking man, first of all. And then you have this dynamic of this, you know, Egyptian man, this Jewish woman. And I think it's just something that we barely see now. There's like such lack of Swana and Middle Eastern representation that's not based in stereotypes and like, you know, some ridiculous movie. Um, this is like just a love story and then it's artistic and you get to see these two people in roles that are just like very humanizing and not playing on tropes. And that's one of the things that I love the most. I, I really agree with that take on, on the characters. I mean, you're talking like I, I think if a movie like that was done nowadays, you would just have this context that justified them appearing, you know, in this part of the world kind of showing up like, mm-hmm. you know, and what, what the movie does is it puts both of these characters in, in their place because like, it, you know, where they are because of just on the backs of their own talent and on their skill and that like. You don't have to question it. They're both successful because they're good at what they do, whether that's, you know, being very charismatic and charming or whether that's being a good gambler, you know, and and yep. until kind of later on in the film, he is really successful. What, what you were saying also just about, you know, these characters and how they are, you know, standards of beauty and the way that the film negotiates with that. It reminded me of this. Uh, it's actually a Pauline Kael quote that I saw in reference to this movie. And I, I have it here, but she basically says that. It's been commonly said that the musical Funny Girl was a comfort to people because it carried the message that you do not need to be pretty to succeed. That is nonsense. The message of Barbara Streisand and Funny Girl is that talent is beauty. And and I just love that framing. Mm. You know, you're watching this movie and it's not it's not that like, oh, look, she's not as pretty as everyone else. But don't worry, she can make him laugh and still get there. It's right. That that's what makes her so charming. She is so much more interesting and captivating than everyone else on the screen because we get to know her personality and because we get to hear her voice. And that's what I think this movie does so well. I think yeah. it also challenges what the even the view of physical beauty is because when she is on stage <laughs> during that scene in the wedding dress with her big belly, first of all, hysterical, yes. like so, like that's imp- pure improv. I mean, you can't just like right. you can't find like or make talent like that. It has to come really natural. But when she's standing on the side and you see her profile, just her nose, there's so much strength and beauty in that that really like kind of crushes and just destroys that whole standard of like oh your nose shall look like this for you to be sexy or beautiful even when she's laying on the couch smoking a cigarette with her mom and her hair is short first thing you notice is this this jewish nose and she looks gorgeous i mean she's like stunning and i'm just like we don't see enough of that even now think about like how when the movie's from to now i don't see movies that showcase features like that which is really kind of disappointing I was literally, you know, I've, I've been texting Harry as I often do for those who are not privy to our private text chains. <laughs> I'm constantly just like stream of consciousness texting Harry about the movie we're about to watch or some other boring stuff. But like a lot of what <laughs> I was saying is that like I, I was trying to find an analog to Streisand today and I was having a really hard time figuring out like who is someone that is like so I would say she's like super. I don't want to say triple threat, quadruple threat, whatever. There's so much going on. She's got like the talent, the charisma, the singing, the Mm -hmm. just sort of like strong personality of just like wanting to make her film. You know, there's a lot of stuff 
surrounding the, the making of this film. So William Wyler directed the film, but he had said in a number of quotes that essentially like she directed this film. This was her first movie. She had a run on Broadway, but you know, she had a very specific view of how she wanted the film to come out. And like, you'll see this like later on in her career as she does like Yentl, which is something that was a passion project of hers. But like, I was trying to find, you know, who is the Barbara Streisand of today? And I was really having a hard time trying to figure out because mm. she's got it all, you know? It's, it's And she's uh, from Brooklyn. Hello. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. just like the icing on the cake. <laughs> totally. Yeah. It's 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 un, unmatchable, you know? And then like Omar Sharif at this point in his career, you know, this was her, like I said, this was her film, uh, first film. And then Omar Sharif was coming off of like Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago. So he was a very proven entity in terms mm -hmm. of, of like leading man stuff. But uh, it was very interesting having him sort of play Nick Arnstein, who was, his dad was Jewish. The, the actual Nick Arnstein, his dad was Jewish and his mother was Dutch. So to have him being played by Omar Sharif, who was like this Egyptian guy playing, I well, one could imagine was like a Jewish character in the film. I don't mm -hmm. know. Very interesting casting, very interesting. It is interesting casting. I, I definitely agree. Cause it wasn't like he's a Mizrahi Jew and his family's like from nope. Syria and he, mm -hmm. like he looks like Oded Fair or something like that. So right. it's definitely interesting. And it's very risky probably during that time, but their chemistry was just, I mean, it oozes off the screen. Yeah. So yeah. it worked out. And and speaking of interesting casting, you know, I, I wanted to find a good time to work this in. So I'm happy we get to talk about it. But Funny Girl, you know, came onto my radar, I would say, pretty recently and has been definitely back in the news because it's it renewed its run on Broadway very recently. And came with that just like a little bit of controversy because, you know, for those who don't know, it was originally cast with Beanie Feldstein, who is mm -hmm. an actor we covered on this podcast before. She was in uh, Booksmart in an earlier episode we did. And she, there were a lot of people commenting on the way that she doesn't necessarily have the booming voice that she needs, you know, the same as Barbara Streisand and that she wasn't really carrying the show and it wasn't working. And in mm -hmm. a very kind of highly publicized and dramatic, you know, fallout, she was, or she left the show a, a little bit early before her contract was set to expire. And then she was replaced by Leah Michelle, who famously, you know, on the show Glee, where she was really famous, was a huge funny girl fan and loved belting out those songs and had kind of, you know, as an actor, had mentioned that this is one of her dream roles and, you know, has taken it over. And I don't know what the exact numbers are now, but I know since she has, it's become one of the, you know, most expensive tickets on Broadway these days. Mm -hmm. Really? And I think it's really interesting to discuss, A, because it's nice to root, you know, our discussion of a movie that's, you know, 60 years old, however old it is, on something that's going on right now, and it's kind of mm -hmm. exciting. But also, the casting, and it moves it away from Beanie Feldstein, who's an actor, like we mentioned, talking about, um, when we talked about Booksmart, who's, you know, very Jewish, wears that on the surface, is, you know, carries a last name that is clearly very Jewish. And then I looked up Leah Michelle just to see, you know, what her experience was. And I think she might have had a Jewish father, but the way she She's describes Sephardic. it. Her... She is actually like ethnically Sephardic, but a practicing Catholic. And people That's get pretty exactly. upset about it. was raised Catholic. I'm going to admit this now. I'm just going to get it off my chest. Please. Um, I was a glee stan, me and my kids. My kids were oh, okay. what, seven or eight when it came out. So... I'm going to get hate for this, but I, I'm not going to say Leah Michelle is a person. I don't know her as a person. There's been a lot of controversy on her, her uh, personality. However, yes. I watched both her and Beanie. There's no, there's no comparison. Leah, Leah really embodies not just Fanny. She embodies Babs. And I think that she does such justice to that. I mean, her voice just, I, I'm not going to lie. I watched the clip and I cried. I was like, holy cow. Ooh, okay. I mean, it was like her voice is pretty amazing. And I think that 
to take on a role like that. Because, of course, Fanny Bryce was an actual person, but most people right. are watching it. They don't think of Fanny as a human being that it really existed. They think of Barbara Streisand. Mm-hmm. And when you take on a role like that, that's such a deep part of like Broadway and just Jewish you know, culture and musical theater. You better have someone who could deliver. And right. I think Leah Michelle, you know, Catholic or not, the Sephardic girl did her thing. So right. it, it's I'm I'm really interested to hear you say that because I was going to ask, you know, what is so important or how what is the most important thing for this character? You know, how can you embody that? And I think that Rain on My Parade only works if it's delivered in mm-hmm. you know the iconic Barbara way. And I, and I think that Leah Michelle is probably as close as we could have gotten now. Mm-hmm. But I do think that Beanie and, and I haven't seen the play with either version. I've watched clips like you have, but, okay. you know, maybe embodies a little bit more of the, you know, the the kind of smaller, a little bit more quieted version. And, and she's never really quiet. She's always very bold, but mm-hmm. just kind of, you know, that that person that you might not recognize as, you know, one of the, uh, the Ziegfeld Follies kind of thing right. from the beginning. And I, I really think the point I'm trying to make is that it just goes to show how incredible Barbara Streisand was of balancing the kind of, you know, real girl, like in your world, kind of just your friend down the street, right. who also has the most huge, larger than life, spectacular, booming voice in the world. And it's just, mm-hmm. it's a testament to how great she was. That's really what I, what I learned from hearing this whole discourse and then watching the movie. It seems like we're all like Barbara fans here. Like it's, 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 I mean... I'm a convert for sure after seeing Yentl and then after seeing this, I feel like this is a much better vehicle for her talents than Yentl mm-hmm. was because in Yentl, all the songs that happened were kind of more of the internal monologue type songs, which we get a, a bit of here. Mm-hmm. Then we get both her, you know, the Nick Arnstein, like, you know, songs to herself kind of thing. But then you also get to see her perform in front of a crowd and she's doing the Swan Lakes and the roller skates, <laughs> and whatever. And you see her like actually performing and actually singing yep. to a crowd, which is kind of like a, a much more natural fit for the singing, I think. I also think that uh, just to comment one last thing on the beanie and uh, <laughs> Leah Michelle thing. Um, Leah has Barbara's profile. That is super important to me. Uh, I think Beanie's, Beanie's a beautiful girl. I heard that she got a lot of fat phobic hate, which is absolutely oh. appalling. I was more annoyed oh. that she just didn't have the notes. Like that was a huge part of Fanny's identity and Barbara's identity. And in the movie. So when I saw, I was like, I don't, I don't, I, I just don't see it like and I'm you know, I'm one of those people like I'm old. I get comfortable. I want to see someone if they're going to be in the role, embody it as much as possible. Um, and so that was yeah, that was my other reason for not uh, loving Beanie in that role because I didn't think that she her face didn't embody fan, like Fanny. And I don't I can't see her being told the things that she was told about her appearance the way that Barbara and Fanny were. She's definitely more socially acceptably pretty. Yeah, Leah's nose wins. That's it. <laughs> there you go. That's the last word, huh? Yeah, the subtle, but clearly a very important detail, you know, mm-hmm. and especially as we're going to trace the Jewishness of this movie. And, and of course, we know, and, you know, worth mentioning just this, the negative stereotypes associated with the Jewish nose. But, you know, if that that is such a big part. It's not just that she's this, you know, not traditionally pr- pretty and this kind of outsider, but she carries her Jewishness throughout the movie. And at first I, oh, I was gosh, expecting yeah. it to just be, you know, when you cast Barbara Streisand, that just comes with the territory. But the movie does a deliberate job of placing her in a very Jewish community with a Jewish mm-hmm. family. Like this is, this really is a movie that is about her, you know, this sort of young Jewish girl entering, you know, what I would say is more of a high society, secular world. Mm-hmm. Right. 
And she comes from Henry Street on the Lower East Side, you know, and we got Hebrew signs and mm -hmm. I, exactly. I, I clocked a few keepas. We'll point them out, you know, <laughs> especially in That's the good. bar scene, you know. Um, yeah. Harry, yeah. Before we get too far, can we just at least uh, do an IMDb summary and clue people in to kind of what the film is about on a very basic level? We definitely can. Yeah. So the summary reads, the life of Fanny Bryce, famed comedian and entertainer of the early 1900s. We see her rise to fame as a Ziegfeld girl, subsequent career and her personal life, particularly her relationship with Nick Arnstein. All right. Say that cover, is it? Yeah. <laughs> Spells it out. No, no Jewish, like it didn't say famed Jewish comedian. I feel like, you know, True. but, uh, and I feel like that was a big part of historically a part of, uh, Fanny Bryce, AKA Fanny Baruch, uh, of, um, of New York. She was Jewish Hungarian and Alsatian. And, uh, yeah, she was born in like the eight, the, the real Fanny that is, you know, she was, she was in the follies around like the 19, I think the 1920s to forties, maybe, or maybe starting a little bit earlier, maybe even as early as like 1910. So I think this film kind of this, the funny girl era is spanning, I guess, just after world war one. All right. Well, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back to discuss the film Funny Girl. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Yasmin Esther to discuss the film Funny Girl. Harry, would you like to get us started? For sure. So the movie opens and we see Fanny Bryce, played by Barbara Streisand. She is a Ziegfeld Follies dancer. And in the beginning, she enters into an empty theater, sits down to take in the view and kind of launches us into a flashback about how she got there. So we see how she got started. Fanny, as you know, a young teenager, is a theater-obsessed person who lands her first job in vaudeville. Her mother and her friend, Mrs. Strakos, try to dissuade her from show business because they say Fanny is not the typical beauty, you know, like, we, like we've been talking about at the top. Uh, while rehearsing for a vaudeville number, the boss complains about Fanny's completely unsynchronized performance and her also non-traditional appearance. He tries to fire her, but she ultimately pushes back and charms him with her humor and wit and gets uh, another gig. So at, with through uh, someone working at the stage, through Eddie, uh, through his help and encouragement, she's given a part in a roller skating act, despite not having any roller skating abilities. And although the act turns into a big mess, the audience finds it hilarious, is charmed for her, and end up giving her, you know, five, I think we learned five uh, rounds of applause afterwards. And uh, I wanted to stop there and just jump into this opening introduction to uh, to Fanny. Yeah, she gets her, like, first taste of laughter with that roller skating bit. Um, you know, you know, kind of, Yasmin, what you were talking about, uh, you know, earlier on about why you chose this film, this idea of, like, um, you know, typical beauty standards and not fitting in, which I feel like is a is a theme that kind of pervades the film, you know, mm -hmm. not just at her beginning, even when she's kind of at her tippity top, like, you know, she still has like a, a because of just the way that she is, she's always different than everyone else. And, you know, as she says, Holmes, all you ever had for breakfast was onion rolls. Now, all of a sudden, one morning, in walks a bagel. So, I mean, you take a look at it, and you say, what is that? Until you tried it, so that's my trouble. What's your trouble? I'm a bagel on a plate full of onion rolls. I love that that term, and I love just like during her songs, she like slips into this sort of like old, you know, bubby accent sometimes. I think mm -hmm. it's like amazing. Must be a plot, because they're scared that I got such a gift. And I think she's just able to charm and bring the goods. You know, she's able to like sing the songs 
incredibly, but then also have such perfect comedic timing. The the first song that Mrs. Straykosh and her her friends are singing about a, a girl not having like the right. If a girl's incidentals are yeah, bigger are no bigger than two lentils, exactly. yeah, that's literally what she says. Yeah, right. Like, yeah. I, thank you for saying that. I, uh, you know, I the the writing is is genius, and just the you know the way that she is just kind of like plucky and daffy, and I don't know all these words, but just kind of you, you get a very good introduction to her and, and kind of her humor and her wit and things like that. And that she takes it with a grain of salt, like it doesn't shake her at all hearing what these women are saying but i also like that her mother is supportive because i feel like so often in movies we see the jewish mother who's like just so like i don't even know full of pressure and criticism for their for their daughters and in this case she was like no my daughter is amazing my daughter's everything and she wasn't listening to her friends and i like that spin because we don't normally see that and sometimes i watch it and i can't believe it's such an old movie because there's new movies that are still lacking that healthy mother-daughter Jewish dynamic. So right. I think that's really nice. Yeah. And and she really encourages her on her own terms. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. you'd expect that, like, you know, I need you to, I mean, the more traditional version would be, you know, get like a job as a lawyer, doctor, do something more traditional. But even in this case, she could say to her, you could go for it, but tone down your humor, you know, play it straight, whatever. And, you know, this is jumping ahead. But later when she does that whole pregnant number, the bride number that we're going to talk about later on, you know, it's her mother who runs into the back room and says, oh, my God, you were amazing. That was perfect. Like, brilliant. There's also a a line in that song, If a Girl Isn't Pretty, that first song. Where she says, is a nose with deviation such a crime against the nation? Right. And it sounds like, oh, that's so funny. But it's actually during that time, especially, is like pretty powerful statement because anti-Semitism was rampant in America during that time. And so even though people you say it and she's thinking, oh, well, just, you know, she has a big nose. It's like, mm, it's a little bit deeper than that. So when I first heard that song, I was like, this is some good writing. Like if because the songs are powerful, like if you listen to the lyrics, it's not just funny or, oh, wow, you know, great vibrato. But the lyrics are like really powerful, too. So I'm assuming that the lyrics were the same for the for the Broadway musical as they were for the to the movie. Right. So I don't know. So the the lyrics from the The original musical or now. Oh, the original. So this the lyrics from the 64 play was uh, Bob Merrill. And the music was Jules Stein, and it looks like oh yeah, yeah. They also did the music for the for the movie as well. So yeah, definitely. Like there's so much good writing and so many lines. Uh, I like to not to brag, but mm-hmm. I like to watch movies with like the subtitles on because sometimes mm-hmm. I can appreciate the jokes a little bit more. And especially with like this movie, and then also I was telling Harry. Um, again, with my text thread, um, you know, with like these Marx Brothers movies where like the jokes come really, really fast. And if you do blink, you'll kind of miss a line or something like that. So that's why I kind of keep them on. And there's a lot of, I, you know, I didn't have enough space on my notes to write how many like little puns and jokes and like double entendres there were in, in the music uh, and, and the lyrics. But I, I loved each number more. This, like I rewatched some of the mm-hmm. songs today and I was like, oh, this is this is great. I think I might maybe subscribe to your diet of, of watching this kind of like <laughs> twice a month or something like that, you know? 
Speaking of the of the joking, I wanted to talk about that second number, the roller skating number, where right. she, you know, ultimately becomes this, you know, laughing stock, but in a very charming way. Again, it, it goes to that line that, you know, comes in later in the film where she, you know, and then that's really in the bride scene, which we keep alluding to. We'll, we'll get to that in, or I keep alluding to and we'll get to that in a moment. But she talks about, you know, they were laughing, but like I was in control of it. It was on my terms. And that was kind of how I was charming them mm-hmm. with this roller skating theme song. You know, I would actually say that she's not really this is the one time we see her you know putting on a performance unintentionally like there's there's no uh she is so uncontrolled on, on these roller skates she's kind of like like looping through everyone and bumping into people and knocking them off and you know what's interesting about it is that this is the one scene where they give her credit you know she's the one who gets the standing ovation maybe because they assume she is doing this on purpose and i don't know what that has to do with you know her her charm or her looks or however that conveys that. But I, this is like really the one number I'd say in the movie where they, they're not quite laughing at her, but she's not in control of her laughter. And, and it's an interesting place to kind of be introduced to her, you know, comedic career at the top. And I, and I wanted to hear your thoughts about what's going on there. Yeah. I mean, I feel like immediately after that group song where she's kind of like fumbling around on the roller skates, she then has like this incredible solo performance that she's like, then like, roller skating around the stage and really commanding the audience. So I don't know, like, it's a good question because I guess she had learned how to skate like immediately after and can now like sing a song. Like, or learned how to intentionally right. fail at skating, but in a, right. in a clever way. Cause that's true. I forgot that she does reclaim it for herself, you know, even in, within that one scene. I think um, her roller skating, the rag song, rag girl song, uh-huh. I think yeah. was actually a little bit of her Andy Kaufman moment moment. Uh-huh. And I think she hmm. knew exactly what she was doing, but she cool. left all of us completely confused. Like, hold on. Because I'm like, if she really didn't know how to skate, she would have fell and not have gone through their legs like she it was almost so yeah. purposeful right. that it was like maybe maybe she wasn't as you know dainty and like you know uh light on her feet as they were but she skated enough that she was able to still control it to get the reaction she wanted so i think it was a little bit of like an andy kaufman thing where we're just never gonna know the truth we were on to you Barbara. <laughs> I, I, no, I, I really like that read because now that I think about it, you know, she's, she's offered the role and she knows it's a roller skating gig and she says she's going to do it anyways. And of course, it's a situation of, you know, take the role, figure it out later. But like she she had to know she wasn't going to master skating between, you know, agreeing to it and the performance, which she probably right. didn't practice. Like she had to be aware. I agree with you that there were moments where she's skating around kind of the front stage and right. like, like she would have fallen off, you know, there, yeah. there was no way that she could do it kind of so perfectly. Didn't she almost, and then they pushed her back or something like that. Yep. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I like that read that this movie is, it's playing on our own propensity to underestimate her and think, Oh wow, she's this klutz. She doesn't know what she's doing. Right. And it's her kind of claiming that in front of our eyes. I I'm, I'm really into that read. Yeah. You never underestimate her. She's working things in the background we don't even know. She pulled the wool over Nick's eyes at the end of the movie, you know, with this whole fine. Anyway, I don't want to spoil it. You know, <laughs> she knows what's going on. I feel like she's like, again, just to go back to my, uh, just my rah rah for Barbara, I feel like she's such a strong and, and, dedicated character that she like tells the bouncer out front that she's one of the, what did she say? She reads it on the wall. And she says, That's all right. I'm one of the eight beautiful girls, eight. Well, the makeup helps a lot. Really? She's just very dedicated and her character has like a singular focus of like wanting to get on the stage and she's fired. And then she's like, never mind, I'm going to come like right back and I'm going to do, you know, she's, yeah, just love it. Love it all. 
I do think The Greatest Star is one of the strongest songs in the movie. And it's personally, I am the greatest star. It's personally mm-hmm. one of my favorites, which is the line that you said, I'm a bagel on a plate full of onion rolls. Right. I think yeah. that's probably one of my favorite songs. I mean, like literally I know it word for word. I sing it at the top of my lungs. I just think because she's like so sure of herself and every line she's explaining why she might not look like them, but they literally will never compare to her. And right. she just like lays it out for them. So I think that song is like such an empowering song. Yeah. I mean, I just love this idea of like embracing your difference rather than trying to fit in. We'll, we'll see later on with the rest of the Follies. But like, I think she shines as sort of this unique uh, snowflake in, 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 in a nice way, you know, mm-hmm. uh, of just being like this very unique, like, like she says so eloquently, the bagel on the plate of onion rolls, like just being so different, but being so unique at the same time and and special and talented and things like that. So It's interesting to me because she clearly knows what she brings to the table and is clearly honed in on that and, and uses that to differentiate herself. But at the same time, I do I did clock a little bit of insecurity from her, you know, about her looks. Like whenever anyone tells her, you know, I think especially a lot later when she's being told that she's like very pretty, it's like, you don't believe that. She doesn't mm. think it's true. And even right. when she does the pillow, like, you know, Zickfield told her to play it straight. And she's like, you, you couldn't actually want me to play it straight. I don't look like that. I'm not pretty. Like, there's no way. And on one end, it's very self-aware. But on the other end, it's definitely coming from this place of insecurity and hesitation. And, you know, I think as the movie goes on, she she grows into learning, you know, just how, like like we said at the top, like how pretty her talent itself can be. But um, but I don't think she's there right away. I, I didn't get that from those opening scenes. Yeah, well, she says it in the song. Even she says, you think beautiful girls are going to stay in style forever? I should say not any minute now. It'll be my turn. Like she literally says it'll be my turn. So that means she sees herself completely separate from these, quote unquote, beautiful women. But I think by the end, she realizes that she's a, a different kind of beautiful. You know, so I think we we kind of touched on this. You know, Fanny has her first performance. That's the I'd rather be blue over you uh, than with somebody else. That's her roller skating, her mm-hmm. subsequent sort of roller skating performance where maybe she just learned how to roller skate or maybe, as you guys were saying, <laughs> she had knew, she'd known all along. So following this debut, she meets the very suave Nikki Arnstein backstage, who's played wonderfully by Omar Sharif. You know, six months later, Fanny is hired and she becomes a member of the Zigfield Follies, which uh, for those who are not familiar, the Zigfield Follies was like a uh, a troupe of of dancers who would go on tour around the country. And, and it's like a variety show. They would do all sorts of fun dancing and kind of like the the Rockettes sort of the, the Radio City Rockettes. I guess that would be the most uh, the modern day analog for that. Um, so so finally, she's she's, you know, she's fulfilled her dreams. This is something she's always wanted to do. And uh, so in in the sort of debut performance that we see on screen, uh, there's this big romantic number about marriage. It's the, the song is called His Loves Makes Me Beautiful. And uh, in an incredible sort of shot, we, we sort of have the all the dancers in wedding attire and they part and we see Fanny come down the aisle with a sort of like, as we mentioned, sort of a pillow underneath her, her dress and she sort of turns in profile and kind of reveals this sort of pregnant belly. Uh, so Zigfield is furious. And after seeing this, he's like, all right, all right. I, you know, kind of changes his mind a little bit. She um, had stuff to pillow in her stomach. In, right, right. She right. didn't just show up pregnant. Oh, no, no. Yeah. yeah. So, so yes, yes. He was initially upset, but then the audience liked the, the, the gag. So he was like, you'll do it exactly as you did tonight. And that's an order. Then she meets Nikki Arnstein, you know, later on, who then accompanies her uh, to her to the celebration, like a celebration of the performance on 
you know, with her people uh, on Henry Street, and we're treated to the song People. Uh, so we'll stop here and kind of like talk about these fun numbers and this sort of debut and the pillow. Um, I think one thing that I, I sort of wanted to touch on is just this idea of, you know, one of the things that she says to Zigfield here is like, I wanted them to laugh with me, not at me. And just this idea of using humor to kind of like control the way that people see you. If you are able to to kind of like play them like an instrument and, and make them laugh in a certain way, I think then it kind of makes it a little bit more uh, easy to get through the world. Yeah. She eight miled them is what she was trying to do. I mean, like uh, that's an expression me and my kids always say, right. Have you ever seen the movie eight mile? I don't know, but okay. So she eight miled them. So she basically was trying to get a step ahead of them because mm. that was her fear was, okay, what are the critics going to say? What is the audience going to totally. say? Because she saw herself as such an ugly woman, which is so sad. That she thought she couldn't just play this beautiful bride, but she actually looked really good, though. I, I certainly thought so. She definitely, like we've been saying, you know, doesn't see herself this way and doesn't think that she deserves all the success that she's able to get. Mm-hmm. One of the uh, one of the lines that I wanted to call out, and this is a little bit earlier. This is right when she's first offered the Zigfield Follies. It's when she gets the um, when she gets the the letter. I think that tells her that she's going to be part of the Zigfield Follies, and we could put the line in here. But she says. You know, where, where's all the suffering before you click? I haven't suffered enough yet. Like she, she doesn't believe it. She doesn't feel entitled or like she deserves it because. Yeah. And I thought that and part of that, I think, is what we're saying, that she's just so like she doesn't have this self-confidence. She doesn't believe that, you know, she could. I mean, she knows what she can offer. She just doesn't believe that it's going to be received the way that ultimately it all is. But the other thing I kind of clocked, and this is something that, you know, goes back to some of the conversations Daniel and I have had over some movies in the past are just this concept of Jewish suffering and the way that mm-hmm. that's ingrained. And I just clocked that as like, wow, like she is so shocked that she didn't have to have any suffering. Like, why should she need that? But that's like, that's a little bit part of the Jewish story. It's it's we get our successes, but it often takes a lot of suffering. And it was just uh, I, I love that that was kind of the first thing that she calls out when she gets that letter. No, absolutely. It's like such a play on intergenerational trauma, right? Like exactly. She's like, no, this is too easy. Something's gonna happen. No, I don't. I mean, can, and that's relatable. I don't know if it's just me, but I am that neurotic Jewish person. Like, I'm always like, wait a second, no, 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 no. something's not right. And so watching it, it was like super realistic to see that because it's just how all the Jewish women in my family. <laughs> no, no question. I, I thought about that line and not only in the Jewish context, which of course I think that's rooted in, I think that is her way of, of touching on that. But even just in, in the movie's conflict, it, it felt like it was coming easily. I, I There's a scene later we'll talk about when they're on the boat and, and uh, Arnie is uh, trying to win a lot of money. And he's like, if I can win this money, you know, we'll get married. And we'll talk right. about that scene later. Mm-hmm. But I was like, oh, here it comes. You know, he's going to lose the money. It's not going to work. And it worked. And we just right. kind of cut to the next scene. And he's like, guess what? I won. I don't know what the number is. <laughs> yeah, they're making a lot it of... rain, right? And he's like, exactly. So there's definitely this like, and I think the, the movie is playing you to have the same reaction that she is, which is, you know, where's where's all the suffering? This is coming too easy. There has to be a catch. You know, she's she, a girl like her is not supposed to be that successful in this world that easily. And I just everything you were saying, you know, intergenerational trauma. I, I think that's yeah. such a part of that. That's part of what makes her such a Jewish character to me when I was watching mm-hmm. it. For sure. You know, I love that we went from this like very high society kind of like theater crowd to then going to like a more modest setting on the Lower East Side where everyone's kind of hanging out at the uh, Henry Street 
bar and we meet kind of uh, Fanny's family and friends and things like that. And and I think we meet we meet Sadie and I love the the dentist gag, like her husband's a dentist and she like flashes her braces <laughs> like sight gags. Love it. Oh. And then I, we just get to see what kind of a nice mensch that Nick is that he plays, you know, he plays poker with all the, you know, the old ladies of the Lower East Side. He's got four aces and a king and decides to fold. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. it just Incredible like hand. And, yeah, unbelievable. And and just goes to show you what kind of a nice person he is. And like, you're like, okay, this is a good guy for Fanny. And then they have this like lovely, lovely song outside the people song. And it's also great. And she's she really belts it in that song a lot. I think that's the scene that you become committed to Nikki, though, because you. I mean, this is like a guy with money. He lives in like, I mean, he is surrounded by the high society people. And he didn't just go, yeah, okay, sure. I guess I'll go with you. He like wanted to go with her and then soaked up the culture of the Jewish Lower East Side community and right. like talked and danced and laughed with them. And I think that that's also not just about, you know, going to a Jewish community, but like class, right? Like, wow, right. he did not have any of these uh, preconceived notions about people that live down there like we normally would see. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Definitely. It, it is really cool because I think in a movie where we see this character coming from her Jewish world and, you know, on her own terms, right? She's not trying to blend into, you know, this high society. She's really bringing her Jewishness in there to see that kind of relationship reciprocated and just have someone coming in. And I guess he's not really imposing his own culture. He's just kind of existing and maybe welcoming, I guess, in turn, he's so moved by her cultural expression that he's willing to then go see it up close for himself. And, you know, again, I think this is on a, a level beneath what's going on in the film. This isn't all just in the text, but to see that exchange happen and to see, you know, it, it worked. She brought her Jewishness to the theater and the theater responded and embraced her Jewishness. I mean, there's really like, there's no conflict in terms of, you know, culture clashing that happened at any point in the film. There, there's a real, you know, and I, I would say a pretty uh, like revolutionary kind of acceptance going on here. It's it's just cool to see. It's it's cool that, you know, it's what Barbara Streisand was doing, putting this movie, you know, or this play on Broadway, this movie in Hollywood. She was just, had, she was representing this very open Jewishness that was received on its own terms. You know, part of, Daniel, you know, you mentioned in the synopsis in, or in the summary that they don't actually mention the Jewishness. Right. And on one end, like, yes, you know, it's always nice to see when they acknowledge the Jewishness. Mm-hmm. On the other end, this story in some way transcends a Jewish story. And even though I think that's a real part of her background and her context, and that clearly is who she is, the story is just about her success and everyone's rooting for her, you know, right. not as this Jewish success story, but just as, you know, Fanny Bryce, who's hilarious and funny and fun and who we can get behind. And I think that's a really cool success of the movie. Totally. It's interesting, too, that like Nick doesn't really have a culture, so to speak. Like we don't know, is he Jewish? Is he Egyptian? All we know about him is that he wears tuxedos and fancy clothes. He gambles and he like races horses and he's like not one to sort of commit about stuff until much later. But like he doesn't plan things. He's always kind of like hustling quite a bit. And I think that's true to the true to the real life version of Nick Arnstein, who was like a gambler and fell in with like Arnold Rothstein, who was a Jewish gangster in New York. And I think this his his background is maybe a little bit more dark. So they probably had to kind of lighten it up for the musical and the movie and things like that. I think most of the time, just going back a little bit, like you said, these pages that do these synopsis, they don't talk about the Jewish aspect because sometimes it's not as obvious to them as it is to us. Right. They're not like lighting, you know, Hanukkahs and doing Shabbat and like, you know, even though there's so much Yiddish flying around, mm-hmm. a lot of 
non-Jews don't even know that oi is a Jewish word, right? So I right. think it's just not even that they don't always want to reflect on it. I think sometimes they just have no idea. They're like, totally. oh, this is just lower class American New York. Right. And that's something that I think I, I'm giving credit to the movie for because it's not trying to explain its Jewishness. It's not trying to throw its Jewishness in a big, you know, lighting the Hanukkah scene and everyone's singing together and kind of throw it in your face. But at the same time, it's not shying away from it either. You know, it's not burying it or hiding it. It's because you mentioned a Hanukkah. There is actually one in the background of their apartment mm-hmm. scene that oh, I nice. that I noticed. And and there's a lot of touches that the movie, like I there's, you know, they're walking through the Lower East Side at one point and there's a Talasum store and you see people with big kippas and talises on a rack. And it's just the movie is doing a really cool job, I think, at not shoving it in your face because that's not what this is about. But also that was part of Fanny Bryce's life. It's definitely mm-hmm. part of Barbara Streisand's life. And this is just like, this is part of the world. You know, if we're going to tell the true story about our world, like this can just exist. This is where she came from without shoving it down your throat. So I think it's, I think it's intentionally rewarding to someone who is looking for that stuff. And even if you're not, you know, you still can appreciate the world and, you know, maybe not pick out every single little touch that, you know, someone watching it for a podcast reviewing the Jewishness of movies might notice when they're, when they're looking at it. But uh, but at the same time, like it is there, which I thought was a uh, really cool. So the movie continues. Uh, we we jump ahead a year later, and Fanny is now the rising star of Broadway. She hasn't seen Nikki since their last meeting a year ago. They've kind of gone their separate ways, but they meet again when she travels to Baltimore as part of the tour. And he happens to also be there, you know, on on gambling duties. He's picking up a, a horse that he's uh, betting on for a race. So they have a romantic dinner together at a swanky restaurant and they declare their feelings in an amazing song, You Are a Woman, I Am Ma'am, which I'm really excited to talk about. And afterwards, they become romantically involved. Instead of going to Chicago with the Follies for their next stop on the tour, Fanny decides to take another train to New York in order to be with Nikki and uh, and join him while he's traveling on a boat. So that's when we get the incredible number, Don't Rain on My Parade. So she ends up finding the boat that's leaving from New York. She catches up to him there and while aboard... Nikki promises that if he could win a fortune that night by playing poker, that he'd have enough money that he'd be willing to get married to her. And eventually he has a lot of success in his game, is successful, and he decides to take her as his wife. And uh, that's that's when we hear her talking about, you know, being Sadie, Sadie. And uh, we, we kind of see them. They move into a mansion, have a daughter. And uh, as they get back and more settled, uh, Fanny returns to, to Zigfield and, and rejoins the Follies after, you know, starting her new life uh, with Nikki. And I feel like we can talk about it there. Yeah, there's a lot lot to cover there. I feel like she sort of um, has leveled up in her career to the point that she is um, no longer, you know, acting the same way or dressing the same way. I feel like something that I want to talk about um, at some point, but I think now's a good time just because we get a a taste of a Mm -hmm. few different outfits. You know, when we see her coming off the train, uh, she's wearing this like, brown outfit with that like iconic sort of hat mm-hmm. and she's getting her like group photo of the follies but then all the follies leave and she's just getting her like solo shots and things like that um <clears throat> and then later on when she's having dinner she has this sort of like purple outfit and there's this awesome gag where he like takes off her <laughs> her shawl and it just like drops down to the floor and it's just the way that she she sort of like she balances like this sincerity with the comedy and then also the singing is just like a perfect match uh, or a perfect mesh of like, yeah, just an awesome, awesome portrayal. Yeah. Is it clear that I like this movie? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. And the wardrobe is ridiculous. I mean, from start to finish, it's so good. Yeah. 
it, it just gets more elaborate and more, you know, the, the way that she looks throughout the film. Like at the beginning, she has these sort of bangs and this sort of like sailor outfit, that red thing. And she's got the, the, the bloomers and the tights and things like that. And then later on, she has like this sort of like cropped, more sophisticated, like 1920s style look. You know, she just kind of grows up quite a bit. And I did want to call out, shout out to another uh, lobster meal. You know, I feel like that's a <laughs> another another way to like show that uh, that you know the person is is kind of getting more worldly, but yeah. also just like showcasing like a very not kosher meal. I feel like I thought that was like a very deliberate choice. I could be way off base here and maybe viewing it through my lens. And she also, I think, what well, something else that she was eating that she had never had, and she was like, "What is this?" Like, it was just like a even though she looked very glamorous and like she belonged, you can still see this was like a completely different life from what she was used to, um, which was kind of nice to watch her ease into it. What you're reminding me of is, is really probably my favorite scene of the movie. I mean, I think the most Jewish scene in the movie and my favorite sequence from this uh, section of the movie I just mentioned, but it's, you know, when they're having that, uh, that dinner together and like, she's again, overwhelmed by the food. I think she, she like refers to, he like orders some fancy, you know, French beef thing. Then we'll have filet de bœuf sauce bordelaise. Seignant? Seignant. All right. I would have ordered roast beef and potatoes. I did. <laughs> and I love that because roast beef, you know, very Jewish kosher food is like, you know, very comforting to her. It's like, it's more familiar. It's where she's from. And it's not, she's not, the movie's not criticized, like faulting her for not knowing these fancy foods. It's just, it's letting her catch up. And then the best line is when he also orders her a pate and she doesn't know what it is and she's all overwhelmed by it. And then she tries it and she goes, oh, it's chopped liver. And she's so <laughs> excited by that. And it's so Jewish. And so like, yeah, she, she found her comfort food. You know, even though she's embarked on this glamorous life, she's as far from home as she's ever been. She's on this boat out in the middle of the of the ocean. You know, she she's still like she she finds her her Lower East Side staples, her chopped liver, her, her roast beef sandwich. And I was just I was so excited to see her cling to that and just see those Jewish food so deeply mm -hmm. embedded in that scene. I agree. Plus, chopped liver is underrated. So, so good. It's very high in iron. Definitely. Good. <laughs> it's, it's interesting how like she sort of, you know, reacts initially to, you know, even back going back a few scenes, like when he starts to flirt with her in the alleyway and her first response is like, why is it because I'm funny? Like she, she doesn't get it. Right. And then like she doesn't get why he's into her. And then later on when he's kind of playing this sort of cat and mouse game and she sees the 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 Ottoman thing there and she's like, oh, are you you know, having, I, I forget the line, but maybe we'll put a clip in here of just like, you know, are you planning to have like a, some sort of, basically she's asking, are, are we going to like hook up afterwards? And she said, oh, is it before or after dinner? Yeah. <laughs> like you got somebody very, else um, coming? What's the word? She's just a little bit crude, but in a uh, funny, funny way. And right. I love it because I feel like that is how girls from Brooklyn are. Like, I feel <laughs> like it was very natural. She wasn't trying to be like, oh, you know, like Prissy. That's just not who she was. And she stayed true to that from the beginning of the movie to the end. Yeah. And then finally, when when like they do kiss and like he starts like, kissing her neck and she's like, all right, this is good. Just a little bit higher. Like <laughs> I love she again, she knows what she wants and she's going to, you know, she's going to tell whoever she's talking to what it is and whether that's like in her career or her love life and things like that. And later on, even she tells Zigfield, like, I want like a personal life. You know, that's, that's kind of, um, you know, when she's talking about raining on my parade, like she calls Zigfield up on the phone and she says like, 
I want my own, you know, I, I can work, you know, whatever. It's only two weeks, but I want my own personal life. And so then we're treated to this amazing scene of her like chasing after uh, Nick in this boat. And then like the poker scene, I don't know. That's in this section, right? Where she's kind of like sitting with Nick on the poker scene. Mm-hmm. Well, just, yeah. Just making eyes and, you know, I love that they, they balance the sort of comedic scenes with the sincere scenes with the musical scenes. It makes like a nice, uh, nice salad. It is a long movie though. So for those people who are planning to watch it, it's a two and a half hour film. So uh, keep that in mind. Yeah. Is it really? I didn't realize that. <laughs> Flies by. Yeah. I think for me, this section showed that she could think rationally about her career, about everything except for Nick. Like when it came to love, she had no rationale. She had no common sense. Like she did so many red flags just all over the place. And not red flags like he was necessarily going to hurt her, but that he was not, you know, probably someone she should have had a kid with, got married, whatever. Um, But she just loved him. And they loved each other for who they were, not their careers, not their money. And I thought that was something that this kind of introduced us to in this part of the movie. I, I I completely agree with you. And I think part of that is because of the insecurity we were talking about. Like she knows her talents as a singer, as a performer, as a comedian. She's completely confident in that. She sees the picture much better than anyone else does. You know, Zigfield doesn't get what she's trying to do. And she's like, trust me. This is going to work. The audience is going to love this. And every step of her career, you know, we mentioned there's no suffering because she knows exactly what she's doing. The suffering in this movie really comes in the form of her relationship with Nikki. And I think it comes from exactly what you're saying about she can't read the sign. She can't see what's wrong or what, what she's missing there because I think she's so insecure that she almost doesn't believe that like he would choose her and he would love her. I mean, she says it a number of times. She's like, Mm. what do you like me for my personality? Like, you don't think I'm pretty. He's like, but I do think you're pretty. Like you're beautiful. And he, and she like is so unwilling to, uh, unable to really see herself as anything, but you know, just someone who's, you know, attracted to for, you know, things outside of her prettiness. And she feels, I guess, so un like, I don't want to say like, she feels so lucky, but she just feels so, unbelievable like she can't believe you know that he actually likes her that it, it i think it blinds her from actually treating the relationship and you know the way that she treats her her performances and the way that she tries to get ahead of it and she's just like i'm gonna bask in this and just assume that everything is perfect because how could it not be right i agree are we are we are we almost to swan lake or are we bypassing swan no lake? oh no that we are pulling up Can, to swan lake right okay now. that's like yes. such an yeah. iconic yeah, scene. Oh, yeah. Why don't we get to it? We're pulling up to this the last song, as as you kind of mentioned, Yasmin. So at this point, you know, they are married. I believe they have moved back. They lose everything. She comes down with the baby. She's sitting at that little table outside the house. Right. And then right, he right. basically makes it, he brings it to her like, this is exciting. We're going to move. And it's really not exciting because they have no money now. Um, right. Yeah. They're kind of size, downsizing quite a bit. You know, Nick has done a, a few things i think he was he was going on a, a riverboat and gambling with people and doing some horse racing stuff and also looking for oil just kind of a well i guess they would call it in 2022 terms he was what we call an entrepreneur just kind of like hustling trying to trying to make uh make money wherever he could and none of it sort of works out and i think you know he's playing a card game trying to get some money back even though the people who are running the gambling place are like nick it's after nine o'clock why don't you get out? No, Tom, thank you. I'll watch it. 
So he misses the debut of Fanny's uh, brand new show, The Swan, which is uh, like the Swan Lake a version. And uh, Fanny's mom, you know, sort of has a, a, a heart, heart-to-heart talk with her about, you know, loving him less and helping him more. Where would I come to criticize Nick? It's you I'm surprised at. Why? Because when you look at him, you only see what you want to see. I see him as he is. I love him as he is. Fanny, love him a little less. Help him a little more. Mama, he, he doesn't need any help. He, he's not a child. The man is drowning. He owes money everywhere. He doesn't know which way to turn. How do you know that? Everybody knows. Only you don't know. And, you know, so they try to rescue Nick from financial debt by bringing him on as like a partner to a gambling house. And Fanny is willing to front the money for him to become a partner. And he is not interested. So he decides to go his own way and get involved in some sort of bond scam and gets arrested by the authorities. Fanny receives the news um, and and about um, Nick's imprisonment from Zigfield and goes to the courthouse where we have a hearing um, with Nick who admits to the charges and he is imprisoned for embezzlement. I think we actually missed a major scene because he when he misses her show, he doesn't get arrested the first time. Oh, is that right? He comes in and he's like, I'm so sorry. How was it? And she's like, uh, it was great. Where the hell were you? And he's like, well, how was the party? And she's like, what party? Like, my husband wasn't here. Like, You weren't here uh, to support oh, me. That's right. 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 Yeah. Right. The hostess wasn't interested in throwing a party. Yeah. Like the host wasn't there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Totally. And then starts basically making her feel like she's being irrational for wanting her husband there on her opening her opening night, which that to me, that scene should have really showed her like, OK, there's something really wrong. Right. Yeah. yeah he, he at this point in the film becomes deeply insecure about, you know, not being the breadwinner of the family. And we, we see at this point he's accumulated a ton of debts and a lot of people are coming to him and saying, you know, you know, when are you going to get us this money? And then at some point they right. say, why don't you just get some money from Fanny? You know, she can afford to pay them off. And he's so he's too proud. He's, he's right. you know deeply insecure over his inability to make money. And he's you know, he's not willing to let her help, which is why, like you were saying, Daniel, when she does come up with this scheme with his you know friend, the gambler owner to, you know, loop him into this deal to open up a new casino where he's going to run it and get an ownership stake in it. Right. And it's not going to charge him anything. Right. The, the deal mm-hmm. that they present to him is that you don't have to pay anything up front. You could just take a percentage. He becomes a little bit suspicious and realizes that it's not that he doesn't have to pay for his percentage. It's that Fanny's already covered right. it for him. And this is what I think is is leads. He's so humiliated by this that he decides he's going to take on this very sketchy offer that we saw made to him earlier. Someone, I think, at the at the racetrack when he was leaving mm-hmm. said to him, hey, I have this, you know, bonds deal that I need you to you front a little bit. And he decides, you know, he's going to just take this scheme, this what we learned to be a legal scheme and. You know, when he gets when when that fails and when he gets caught by the by the police, he's arrested. And, you know, that that's what sends him to jail ultimately. Right. And uh, yeah, I feel like he takes a pretty dark turn here at this point. Like he becomes this sort of, you know, I guess time appropriate person, you know, like of the time, I think, you know, having your wife pay for something for you wasn't something that men did. But, uh, you know, sort of as as he's kind of saying farewell to to Fanny and their parting ways. Nikki calls her funny girl and they have a nice song um, there and says that they should break up. And Fanny ends up uh, waiting for him. So once they come back, they then agree to separate and she's heartbroken and uh, says that I am his forevermore. And she sings my man. And then that's sort of uh, that's sort of our last song of the film. 
and then we get our credits. But yeah, that's sort of the the last chunk of our of our of our story of Fanny Bryce. It's really sad, actually. The ending always I always cry when they when he goes to jail and she realizes like she could like her mother said she enabled him. She didn't help him. But then at the same time, I feel like she knew who he was or maybe she didn't. I mean, maybe she was just that naive. I don't know. Right. But I think that it was like there's the suffering that you were talking about that you kept referring to over and over acting as if like you didn't deserve this. Unfortunately, it wasn't your career. It was your marriage. But I mean, we do get that like intense suffering and trauma, which is probably why the beginning of the movie is my favorite and the end just makes me sob. I mean, it's it's interesting. Earlier on, there's a quote. She or she says to Nick, you know, that's where I live. I live on stage. And he says, well, you're missing too much. And I feel like maybe because she's so singularly focused on performing and just being the best Fanny Bryce that she could be on stage that she just has blinders on and is like not aware of what other, which is like plainly obvious to so many other people. For a movie who I, which I think it's opening thesis really is this concept of, you know, you can go against the tide and you can be, you know, despite what you perceive as your own flaws, you know, you can find ways to stand out and really in the face and, and kind of feel very confident and independent of yourself. It ultimately, you know, that that's really where we carry the first of this two and a half hour movie, the first two hours. And then where it ends, it, it falls in this real place of, insecurity and unaware you know we, we spoke about that a little bit with fanny where you know i think she she never really learns and at some points does more so than others but is is still doesn't fully learn to appreciate her own beauty and you know what we're talking about the sort of beautiful frame that she has but you know i i see it especially with nikki at the end i mean he is so deeply insecure and he's not our protagonist but he doesn't get this kind of sobering like he comes back from jail and you think that he's going to say i i figured it out i know you can support me whatever he and this is probably true of the real life story but he says i've been thinking about it and she kind of pitches we should get divorced and he's like yeah like i think this is the end for us and it's it really ends the movie on these two notes, you know, from these two characters of insecurity, where I think each of them has their their moments and their places where both of them in their own right are the most confident, the most comfortable person in their respective rooms, whether that's, you know, Fanny when she's commanding a stage and Nikki when he's, you know, doing well in the casino, he's the most suave, approachable guy there. But at the same time, they're battling their insecurities and other facets. And it's just it, it's fascinating to me after, you know, our, our full discussion we've had on the movie and got into this point, how it really ends them in this place of uncertainty. Like we we meet Fanny. I don't know if it's her lowest point, but, you know, newly divorced, kind of losing some of the luster she's had for the for the theater. And it's, it's a really interesting place for this movie to go. You're right. It's not really like a happy ending. It's just kind of like an ending. <laughs> You know, yeah. we, do, we do get to see her at her high, high, which is like the swan. Like I, I was, you know, keeping track of all the of the different dances and her evolution throughout the. Now, permit me this. We're going to get on the stretch train here. I feel like this is sort of like the Jewishness of it is like becoming a woman, becoming like a bat mitzvah. Like, you know, she kind of like is learning quite a bit. She's becoming more assertive towards men in terms of like saying what it is she wants. She loses her innocence. Uh, to Nick, you know, in that scene, she kind of graduates from wearing this sort of like infantilizing clothing at the beginning that look, makes her look kind mm -hmm. of young to getting this like very risque stuff towards it. Not super risque, but, you know, like more elegant and sophisticated. She's got the different hairstyles and then she becomes like a woman in the man's world. She's bossing around Sigfield and she's paying money for Nick's share in the gambling house. So she's in some ways, you know, growing up quite a bit, but in some ways... 
it seems like she's still not quite able to sort of see the full picture. So I may be poking holes in my own theory here, but I, I don't know. I just thought I would put that out there because I was, you know, and, and like the music and the performances get more elaborate as we, you know, go, like we talk about like the swan, sh the swan song at the end. And like, she's incredible as a dancer and like her wisecracks and her like sort of like Jewish grandma voice that she does throughout mm -hmm. the entire song is like awesome. And I feel like it's the perfect marriage of everything that she's sort of building, been building throughout the entire movie. Yeah. I feel like she's actually like, uh, it's a little homage to Mrs. Straykosh because she sounds very similar to her. And right, I think she right. draws on like the people in her environment, which makes it so much more authentic. But I agree. She starts out with like that little like sailor looking dress shirt thing right. with her little hat. And then she's like this woman with like these ridiculous hats that are just like stunning and these coats. I mean, and that for me, you know, I would say, like I said, greatest star is my favorite, but when she looks in the mirror with that leopard coat and she just says, hello, gorgeous. That's just like, to me, I think that's the moment where even though it's technically in the beginning of the movie, it's how she got there to finally realize like her worth. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, it was definitely, I agree, like Bat Mitzvah, like you watched her become a woman. Like she evolved in love. She became a mom. She evolved in her career. And I think she, when she looked at herself in the mirror in the beginning, even though technically it's the end of the movie, right? right. It's the beginning, but it's the end. Um, that was her like finally acknowledging everything that people told her about herself, which I thought was uh, really beautiful. And, and part of that is just learning this nuance. You know, when we, when we meet her as this teenager, she is like unflappable, doesn't listen to anyone, is willing to brush everyone aside and do what she needs to do. And, you know, like in, in some ways, you'd expect that to be kind of the end goal for a character. It's like learn your true self-confidence. And I think what she learns is just how to relate to people a little bit more. I mean, she's shown as this kind of lone, you know, we, we called her like a snowflake before, just as like lone standout amongst people that were nothing like her. And that kind of fierce independence was critical to her early success. But what it did, what it did in some ways is it alienated her from seeing other people because it forced her to think so, so, you know, it's not selfishly, but it's really just so, you know, exclusively on, on herself. Like she had to be the only one advocating for herself and letting herself be different and, and so nonconformist in the beginning because that was her way to success. But you know, I'm not saying it's it's her fault because I think that the movie kind of frames Nikki as being someone who was a little bit unfair to her. But she also like she she didn't see him for who he was. She was very laser focused on her own career, on her own success. Mm -hmm. And part of what the movie kind of does at the end is is it, the way that she grows is a little unexpected. But I'm now realizing is it's, it's pulling her down to earth a little bit and helping her realize, you know, how her family and how her loved ones and how they're they're kind of all a part of her story and how she has to you know she she can't just be that lone parade kind of marching out in the middle of the the follies tour and and you know going out on her own and doing her own thing like that's not necessarily sustainable when it comes to building long relationships yeah i like that a lot that's a good mic drop good place to stop uh, all right let's take a quick break here we'll come back and we'll kind of talk about the film in terms of its content its themes its cast and crew and we'll each rate it on a scale of one to five stars of david we'll be right back welcome back to jews on film i'm here with harry as always and yasmin esther and we're talking about the film funny girl and uh, we're going to be rating it on a scale of one to five stars of david in terms of cast and crew, content and themes, 
Um, I'll get it kicked off in terms of the cast and crew. So Barbara Streisand, Jewish, and, and Omar Sharif, uh, you know, our two late, uh, Omar Sharif is not Jewish, but William Wyler, I looked up, uh, his parents were Jewish. So th there you go. If we're keeping score at home, the tally there. And I think I'm looking at some other names. Mrs. Strakosh is Jewish, a hundred, right? Like in real life. Yeah, she's Jewish. Is that K Medford or no? Is that? Uh, it's May Castell, I think. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's May. K May. Uh, Medford is uh, Fanny's mom and I can't, I could never seem to find anything confirming like the, anything about her. Very weird. Okay. So we have like, you know, key figures here and there that are Jewish. Yeah. May, May uh, Castell, I'll, I'll call out because I just looked up her IMDb, you know, speaking mm -hmm. of calling out Jewishness. And I'll, I just wanted to read the first line of her bio on her page. Mm -hmm. Her Orthodox Jewish family were totally averse to her having an entertainment career. Boom. Sounds Jewish. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So for as far as like casting crew, little little bits of Jewishness here and there, but not an overwhelmingly Jewish cast. And then content wise, where do you all think, you know, in terms of the Jewishness? Oh, it's a five for me. Absolutely. And it's a natural. It's not a tokenizing Jewish representation. It's not a self-deprecating like, oh, wow, Jews. Like as a Jewish person watching it, I feel like it's relatable. It makes me laugh. I'm like, oh, yep, I could see my grandmother doing that. I don't feel like people watch it and then think badly about Jews or like mock us. It doesn't feel like that. It just feels very authentic in our culture. And I also think specifically for New York Jews like very specifically for New York Jews. It's like you watch that and it's, it sounds like home. It feels like home. Um, so I, yeah, five all the way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Content wise, I, I certainly agree with that and everything you're saying, like, it's not just a, you know, it's not, we, we said before that when you're watching it with this Jewish lens that of course we are, you, you tend to notice some stuff, but I really believe you don't need to. I, I think anyone watching this movie, I mean, it is so undeniably from a Jewish world and it owns up to that. And like we said, it's not, you know, uh, it's not like spotlighting that. It's not putting that in your face. It's not tokenizing it. I love that word that you used because it really, it's just there. It's just, this is a Jewish story from a Jewish world. And, you know, even when I think, you know, thematically, and and the reason I'm not going to give it five out of five stars overall is because thematically, I, I just think that although there are a lot of Jewish themes and I liked our bat mitzvah stretch read and I liked, you know, these just like loaning up to yourself. I mean, I think there's some Jewishness there, but it, it did feel like the movie wasn't interested in telling a kind of uh, like a thematic Jewish story. You know, I, I don't think that really pervades into what what its lessons are or what, you know, her, her trajectory is, which I think is a lot about, I mean, you know, like a lot of her standing out, we, we did say is, is very true to the Jewish experience, to the Jewish immigrant experience, you know, coming to New York and kind of fighting your way into a world of, and you can imagine, you know, the, the, the Follies world that she was part of probably wasn't so, and I, actually, I don't know, you know what, I'm not going to speak to that, but I don't know how, how Jewish, now that I think about it, I mean, maybe it was a very Jewish thing, but not in the way that she was. And, and it, even now watching a movie where a character is so infusing her Jewishness and is talking in the accent that she they're talking in the accent that she is and and is working in these lines about you know roast beef and about uh you know chopped liver like there there really is actually some jewishness in terms of her in terms of this being kind of an anti-assimilation story or reverse assimilation her infusing her jewishness into the world so i i convinced myself to give it a little bit higher i i still think that there's a lot going on in the story so you know i'll, I'll see your five and probably give it four and a half Jewish stars, because I, I think that the content is undeniable. And even thematically, I mean, a lot of the story is about her 
relationship with her Jewishness and, and how that characterizes her and how that plays out in a world that's not as Jewish, but yeah. it's not, you know, the, the thesis, I don't think it is fully, fully just about, you know, her Jewishness, but four and a half. I mean, it's, it's one of the higher scores we've, I've, I've given a film on this podcast. This was <laughs> such a Jewish movie. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I would, I'm probably going to come in, you know, ballpark, same area. I, w- I was thinking like four or four and a quarter, because I think it's a story of a person who is Jewish, who grows up in a Jewish environment but the story itself is someone's rise, you know, in stardom, in a dance troupe. You know, the log line doesn't mention she's Jewish. She happened to be Jewish, but like. But I, yeah. but I think it's more than that. You know, that, that's oh, kind sure. of what I was talking myself. Sure. It's not sure. just yeah. Yeah. she happens to be Jewish. Like this story is very different if she's not Jewish. Like I think you could tell it with another ethnic background. You know, sure. she her, sure. her outsiderness, her kind of not conforming mm-hmm. to secular society. It could come from another place. Sure, but sure, sure. The story, I think, isn't the same without that sure. angle and, and true to probably the real Fanny Bryce and true to the story. Like, I, I think the Jewishness is is pretty critical now that I think about it. No, I, what I was going to say is like, I think the themes part, like what you were saying about the fitting in, I think for me, that's kind of where the Jewish angle comes and presents itself a little bit stronger. To me, I read like content is like the literal story, whereas like the themes is a little bit more underneath and that's where we get into stretch territories of bat mitzvah talk and you know assimilation and all that kind of stuff so i think i'll probably go for which is not to say that i didn't love this movie at all i just have seen you know the record will uh, will remain clear on that <laughs> you love the yeah i think i think anyone who has listened to this podcast will probably yeah you're right and so yasmin any other thoughts on the any closing thoughts on the film um, apparently my dog has some, no, I just, I think sometimes we think of Jewish films having to be like a Yentl is a Jewish film, right? But no, because I'm mentioning another movie here. I'm not going to talk about it, but like Uncut Gems is a Jewish movie through and through. I mean, I sat in that theater and I was like, holy crap, this is amazing. These people look like my family. They're like my kids. This is great. And I can relate to it. The same with Fanny obviously the funny girl a little bit different you know the time frame etc but i like i said i think growing up and my mom's family is ashkenazi from new york right so like my dad's family is you know mizrahi from israel I, they would watch this movie and be like what is this like what is this but coming from an ashkenazi mother hearing the inflection in these women's voices just the you know the way they talk Again, just like the the mention of the chopped liver and the mm-hmm. roast beef, some right. of it was so subtle, but to me that makes it even more authentically Jewish versus sure. like outright tokenization and like a mockery or like you know, just like what are you purposely trying to make this a Jewish movie because it's not a Jewish story, but in a way it is right because this girl right. is in it, her family's immigrants, and you know she um isn't pretty. American standards and so it is Jewish at heart and I think that's just for me I always go based on like that versus like how many times they mention Jewish things but like you know just Mm -hmm. the the the, the kosher uh, butcher and things like that like in the background so les it's like so lower east side during that time so yeah I'm sticking with my five stars (laughs) yeah Yeah. I, I I I'm convinced I mean you can tell when a film was made by Jewish filmmakers who just know you know they're not looking at a list of like what tokenized things can we throw in here and what references can we make to show like look this is Jewish like they just can't they they created a world that 
I, you know, I love that you're saying it's just so true to the real world. Like representation matters. It's cool to see, you know, right. real Jewish stories on screen, especially when they're not trying to tell you that they're a Jewish story. Right. Yeah. And she did deal with anti-Semitism in real life, Fanny. But I oh. kind of like that that's not in the movie because it shows that her Jewish identity is intricate to who she is, but it does not define who she is. So the anti-Semitism right. she faced would have been like, I want to see that if I'm watching like the story of Fanny Bryce. But that's not what this was. This was just about her rise to fame, not her full story. So I don't know. I think, yeah, I just think it's super Jewish. (laughs) It's nice. It's nice to see, you know, her Jewishness as an asset, as a part of her identity and not necessarily this crutch. Like I'm, I'm very happy that the suffering, you know, came in the forms of her relationship and, and, you know, I'm not happy for her. It would be better that she didn't get divorced, but it was nice to see at least in the movie that to kind of be the opposition and not all of a sudden there's a new theater director exactly. Who's Who's anti-Semitic and like, yeah, 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 yeah. That would have felt cheap. Totally. But were they being anti-Semitic at the beginning? You know, the kicking her out initially, firing her. I think it was probably just because of her. She was a really bad dancer. I mean, she was so out of sync with the other dancers. Totally. I mean, you got to start from somewhere, you know? Exactly. I wanted to ask a closing question. I probably should have asked this before, but I held back a little bit. When, When Nick calls her a funny girl, like, does that, what does that mean to you? Well, I think that it's calling her funny is how most women would react when you call them beautiful. That is really what she cares about. She doesn't, as much as she says that she's not beautiful, I think she just doesn't honestly care at this point. I think that it's really for her, she gets off, for lack of a better word, gets her jollies, whatever, on being funny, on people laughing. And so that acknowledgement from him, the first person who really like believed in her that didn't really know her and kind of went out on a limb, like, you know, risked her money, you know, I don't know if you guys remember in the beginning, like back and forth was like negotiating her fees. I think Mm -hmm. it was just her, his way of acknowledging, like you made it, like you are that person. And I think that meant more to her than anything else you could have said. Lovely read. Cause I was totally going to go down. Like I was going (laughs) to like, be like, Nick, come on. Why are you giving her shit? Like that's like calling, you know, I don't know, but that that's a totally <laughs> it's a totally good read on it. I think you're totally right. I think that's a, that's a spot on read. I agree. I think it you know to bring it full circle. It was that quote that I was bringing in by Pauline Kael. You know, she's not she's not able to make it. You know, despite her not being pretty, it's what's pretty about her is her talent is her is how funny she is. So, Yasmin, you said it perfectly when you said you know that was his way of calling her pretty. I mean, that's how someone would have reacted to being called pretty. It was like funny girl, like. You know, it, it reminded her of why, you know, they were drawn together in the first place, how he was the one who was really able to recognize her. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Yasmin, Esther, thank you so much for being here on Jews on Film to discuss Funny Girl. Uh, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time and, and uh, talking about a film that you very clearly love for good reason, <laughs> you know. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I wanted to ask, uh, is there anything you'd like to plug or promote so that our audience can find out more about you? Um, you can just check out my Instagram, yasmin and see what I'm doing over there. Always having interesting conversations. Um, and we talk about Funny Girl a lot. Sometimes I'll just post Funny Girl clips in my stories on a random Tuesday because everyone should watch the movie, honestly. Nice. All right. Agreed. Well, thanks, uh, everyone, for listening. And uh, make sure to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, TikTok. Instagram. Uh, you can write us at JewsOnFilmPod at gmail.com if you have any suggestions for films we'd like to watch or you have any feedback for us. 
Aside from that, if you haven't already, go check out Funny Girl. It's a great movie. And have a good rest of your uh, day or night. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Harry Ottensasser and Daniel Zana. Daniel edited this episode. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>